And we are rolling. My name is Alex Painter, and this is Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And believe it or not, folks, this is episode three, and a good one is planned. We're going to take a stroll down memory lane while also looking forward to the future and to the 2019 football season, which is creeping ever so closely to us. In fact, when this episode airs, our opening tilt against the Louisville Cardinals on Labor Day will be a mere seven weeks away. And now, per usual, before we get going, I want to get some thank yous out of the way. First, as always, thank you to Joseph Rakish for the song, our theme song. It's called Canute Rockney. I actually shared the link on the Facebook page, so you can go to the SoundCloud page, uh, but it's also available on Spotify, Apple Music, as well as YouTube. So the song's Canute Rockney. It serves our show very well, and thank you again for the opportunity to use it. And uh, thank you to everybody who liked and shared episode two. It was a good bit of fun for me to put together. So just as a quick recap, uh, I had the opportunity to sit with Jim Augustine. You know him better as Augie, perhaps, uh, uh, who owns Augie's Locker Room, a specialty Notre Dame store in South Bend, Indiana. So as I mentioned, it is a store. And as we kind of alluded to several times in the conversation, it kind of doubles as a de facto museum uh, where everything is in fact for sale for the most part. But um, it was great to kind of get a little bit of his insight. He is extremely knowledgeable on all things Notre Dame football and just a a wonderful person to talk to, has great perspective. And uh, hopefully if you haven't had an opportunity to listen to that conversation, you can go back and listen to At Your Leisure. And in addition to that, we also talked about how President Theodore Roosevelt not only really saved the sport of football back at the turn into the 20th century, but he also kind of jump-started a Notre Dame gridiron dynasty. So, as always, the show's headquarters is on the Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash onwardtovictorypodcast. That's where all the updates, uh, and as I mentioned, uh, kind of everything is is funneled through. I I always kind of refer to it as HQ. But we are hosted on Podbean, so you can find this episode naturally and the first two episodes at onwardtovictory.podbean.com. And in addition, you can always send the show an email. Uh, The email address is onwardtovictorypodcast at gmail.com. So I'll read anything that comes through the email. You know, if you want to strike up a correspondence about things you've heard on this podcast, uh, if you have thoughts uh, or opinions, as I mentioned, rants, feel free to, to send them my way. However, I can strike up a good correspondence with, with anyone who listens it would be greatly appreciated. And always something to just kind of keep in mind as well. The show is not intended to be, as I mentioned in previous episodes, each episode's not meant to be very dated. Now, there will be some information that is somewhat time-sensitive, but For new listeners, I'd like it to be very episodic in the sense that you could almost binge listen to the show, uh, you know, whether it's in a week or a month or a year or five years, because hopefully some of the content that we talk about 
is truly timeless. You know, episode one, we talked about the story of Angelo Bertelli, and I think that'll be a great story, regardless of when it's reviewed, as well as, you know, last week, the conversation with Augie, as I mentioned, and this week, we have yet another great story, I'd like to think, anyways. So, for new listeners, don't let the fact that you're just maybe jumping on here on episode three deter you from going back and listening to episodes one and two. As I mentioned, go binge listen uh, if you have time, if you're driving. Uh, you know, you can listen to it in your car, you can listen to it whenever. Um, and of course, if you've been around and you've been around for episodes one and two, you know, don't hesitate to go back and re listen to. Uh, and again, if you have thoughts, you know, don't hesitate to, to reach out. Now, uh, if you go back and listen to episode one, I do slip uh, in a South Bend, Ohio, as opposed to a South Bend, Indiana. I'm still completely unsure how that happened, but it did. So it's been pointed out to me actually a couple times by a couple people, and I missed it through my edits. I'm not sure how again, but so if you really listen to episode one, you'll hear a South Bend, Ohio. Please note that I am actually referring to South Bend, Indiana. And so finally, quick update as well. We do have some merchandise available. Included is a business card size magnet for your fridge or whatever have you as well as postcards So I will be sharing details about how to get your hands on either or both of those on the Facebook page And you know, although they're small, uh, I'm really excited about them So I'm excited for you all to see them and uh, again if any of you are interested We'll talk about ways that you can make sure you obtain the official Onward to Victory magnet or the official Onward to Victory postcard and, of course, I'd like to believe that there will be more and different merchandise coming down the pike as well. So, without further ado, let's let's get on with the show. So, before we begin the formal segment, I'll give a bit of an introduction. A lot of us, I'm sure, watch every Notre Dame football game. I'm actually in that group. And, you know, over the years, there are games that probably stand out to you, sometimes for all the right reasons and perhaps some others for all the wrong reasons. But the one we're going to talk about today is one that stands out for all the right reasons. So the former category instead of the latter. When I think about it in terms of the last nine to ten years of Notre Dame football, this game truly, I believe, kind of served as a bit of a flashpoint to usher a new era in Notre Dame football. So we'll go into detail about it. I don't want to steal too much of of the segment's thunder, but uh, if you saw the episode placard, you know which one I'm talking about. So October 13th, 2012. Notre Dame, number seven ranked Notre Dame versus number 17 ranked Stanford University. Now, I believe the Notre Dame-Stanford rivalry, the one for the Legends Trophy, tends to kind of fly under the radar a little bit. Uh, we've played them every year since 1988, and it seems pretty evenly matched most years. But this particular game, and we'll talk about why soon, had the full range of emotions. In fact, I mean, when I think about it, I can remember very specifically like which part of the room I was standing in during various high pressure points of the game. Uh, I say standing because during Notre Dame games, it is very, very rare that I sit down. I'm constantly standing, constantly pacing. That's just kind of who I am. But I can remember distinctly at various points which part of the room I was standing in Truly, not to use an uh, you know use an overused football cliche, but it was truly a game of peaks and valleys. There are some performances, individual performances, that were just breathtaking. Others that were just pull your hair out, frustrating. And you know, as we kind of get into uh, a recap of the game, uh, it'll become clear which ones those were. But really, no matter how you cut the cake, it still stands out to me as one of the greatest football games I have ever watched. And it was a great back-and-forth affair. It was a sloppy game. 
uh, both in terms of the weather and from time to time execution. But it did feature one of the gutsiest moments in sequences in Notre Dame football history. And so again, without further ado, I'd like to present They Stopped Him, a comprehensive account of Notre Dame's epic 2012 overtime goal line stand against Stanford University. Now, in order to fully appreciate this game, context is necessary. And for that, let's start from 2007 to 2011, the year before this game takes place. Over those five seasons, the final three years of the Charlie Weiss era, and the first two of that of Brian Kelly, the Notre Dame football team had a record, a composite record, of 32-31. and 31, Just a nose over 500 football for five total seasons. The rivalry between Notre Dame and Stanford, people debate when the quote-unquote rivalry actually started, but the teams have been playing each other every year since 1988. And the winner of the game gets the Legends Trophy. Now, Notre Dame won each contest between the year 2002 and 2008, which really would signify that even when Notre Dame wasn't great, they always kind of managed to beat Stanford. But Andrew Luck became the starting quarterback for the Stanford Cardinal in 2009, and he promptly dealt the Irish three straight losses between 2009 and 2011. Uh, this was actually done by a combined score of 110 to 66, or an average of 37 to 22 over those three seasons. So the Cardinal went from uh, seven straight losses to beating Notre Dame on average by two touchdowns for three years. So Luck fortunately for the Irish, was drafted number one overall in the 2012 NFL Draft by the Indianapolis Colts. So fast-forwarding a bit to the 2012 season, Notre Dame was a surprise on the college football landscape with a 5-0 record, with impressive wins against then number 18 Michigan and number 10 Michigan State, as well as wins over Purdue, Navy, and an absolute drubbing of the Miami Hurricanes heading into their Week 6 matchup against Stanford. The Irish would sport a number seven ranking heading into the game, which was to be played at Notre Dame Stadium on October 13th. Stanford would enter the game with a 4-1 record and would enter the game as the 17th ranked team in the land. And their signature win was against the then number two ranked USC Trojans. ESPN's College Game Day was even slated to be in South Bend for the 3.30 p.m. game. Of note, it had been almost seven years to the day since the program last graced South Bend with its presence. The infamous Bush Push game of 2005, in which saw the Irish fall to USC 34-31, was that last time that college game day was in town. And yes, Vince Vaughn was on hand, and Lee Corso would do an Irish jig in complete leprechaun garb that afternoon to signify a predicted Notre Dame win. Now the game would begin at 3.30, but that was after nearly five hours of rainfall, which continued into the contest and muddied the field. And it would certainly play a pivotal role in the game, creating sloppy conditions. Ultimately, both teams would run the ball nearly 40 times each, while only completing a shade over 50% of the passes attempted. Now for the game's first six series, the defensive struggle did indeed ensue. 
Notre Dame quarterback Everett Golson lost a fumble on the initial Irish drive, and two of Stanford's first four drives ended with quarterback Josh Nunez's interceptions, the second of which set up Notre Dame's first points of the game, a 29-yard field goal from kicker Kyle Brenza. 3-0 Irish, end of the first quarter. But the Cardinals struck back in the second quarter. No small thanks to Golson's struggle to hang on to the football in the wet conditions. One sack led to a fumble recovered by Stanford in the end zone. A 7-3 Cardinal lead. The subsequent Notre Dame drive was again stalled by a lost fumble. The Cardinal would turn around and use the last minute and a half or so of the half to drive 45 yards to set up a 48-yard field goal try heading into the locker room. Cardinal kicker Jordan Williamson split the uprights. End of the first half, Cardinal 10, Irish 3. Now those of us watching this game, the realization kind of set in. It is very possible that based on what you had saw out of the Notre Dame offense and the field conditions were not improving, that the Cardinal possibly could have scored enough points by this time to have sealed a win. The beginning of the second half didn't do much to inspire much confidence in the Notre Dame offense. The first two drives led to punts, and the third offensive drive for the Irish of the second half was yet another Everett Golson fumble, this time deep in Stanford territory. Now fortunately for the Irish efforts, the Notre Dame defense was also up to the task, as the first three Cardinal drives of the second half also stalled, ending in punts. Senior linebackers Manti Teo and Dan Fox, as well as senior defensive back Zeke Mata, led the charge for the Notre Dame defense. This is fairly obvious, but during the 2012 season, there is not nearly enough to be said about the on-field presence and production of senior middle linebacker Manti Teo, but more on that soon. Taking control of the football, now trailing 10-3 with 3.20 in the third quarter, it had been exactly 27 minutes and 16 seconds worth of game clock since the last Irish points. To relay this point in a bit more of a brutal fashion, here are the drive outcomes for the Irish thus far. Fumble, punt, punt, field goal, punt, fumble, fumble, punt, punt, fumble. The Irish offense drove into Cardinal territory, but with a third and 18 from the Stanford 24-yard line, the drive looked all but stalled once again. Though common sense would tell you it was a passing situation, Golson looked shaky all day, and shaky is quite an understatement. Honestly, I remember thinking that a draw play with Theo Riddick would work well here, perhaps pick up a chunk of yards while centering the ball for another Kyle Brinza field goal attempt. Anything to get some more points on the board and draw the game a bit closer. The Irish lined up in a three-wide shotgun formation. Golson took the snap, immediately looking to his All-American tight end. Tyler Eifert. Eifert ran a perfect corner route, and Golson unleashed something he hadn't all day long, a dart. Eifert, in a tremendous individual effort, leapt between two Cardinal defenders to snatch the ball out of the air, landing in the end zone. Touchdown Irish. 10-10 ball game. The stadium had new breath, new vitality, and feeling a sense of momentum that wasn't even sullied, by the Cardinals' subsequent drive, which netted them a field goal and a reclamation of the lead, 13-10. At this point, there are six minutes left in the ballgame in regulation, and facing a 13-10 deficit, the Irish offense had to keep moving. Golson was finally looking comfortable in the pocket, connecting with receiver T.J. Jones on a 14-yard gain, 
on third and short would bring the Irish to midfield. Two plays later, while attempting to scramble, Golson was absolutely leveled, taking a brutal shot to the head from a Stanford defender. Though the 15-yard personal foul penalty would move the Irish deeper into Cardinal territory, Golson would leave the game with what would be diagnosed as a concussion. Just as the sky opened for even stronger rainfall, Notre Dame's backup quarterback, Tommy Reese, would enter the game in perhaps the most pivotal point of the season. But the backup was a seasoned one, having already appeared in 25 games in his career, including three during that 2012 season already, leading the team in critical moments against Purdue earlier that year. Reese completed one pass on the drive, and the offense was aided by a pass interference call and a Kyle Brinza 22-yard field goal try with 20 seconds left in the game would ring true. After four full quarters, the game was tied 13-13, and the college game day game of the week was destined for overtime. Stanford would win the overtime coin toss, not surprisingly electing to start on defense. Reese and the Notre Dame offense would take the field at the Cardinal 25-yard line. Reese, despite taking a sack on first down, looked like a sage veteran, completing his next two passes for 25 yards before finding wideout T.J. Jones again for a seven-yard touchdown. And the catch was a phenomenal one. Jones, running a simple in route, extended clear across his body to snag Reese's poorly placed pass. It was so improbable that multiple Cardinal defenders were waving their arms to signify that they thought the pass was an incomplete one. But no such luck. Touchdown Irish, the Cardinal, now down seven and needing a touchdown to tie and then extend the game, took over with the ball. And speaking of the ball, if I'm giving a game ball out to anyone for this game and I rewatched it, it's Stanford running back Stephon Taylor. He carried the ball 28 times to grind out 102 incredibly tough yards. Anyways, on third and two from the Irish 17-yard line, the 5'9", 215-pound Taylor powdered the Irish defense for a 13-yard gain. And it was first down on the 4-yard line. First and goal, 4-yard line. A field goal was off the table. This was destined to be what could be a 4-play battle for every single inch. Now, hold on, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't feel right. We, yeah, absolutely. We, we need to pump in some crowd noise for this next sequence. Hang on, hang on a second. All right, that's that's a little bit more like it. So the Cardinal came out on first down with one of their heavy power running formations with two tight ends and a fullback. The Irish countered with a five defensive lineman front with linebackers Manti Teo and Carlo Calabrese standing over the center. Just as the ball was snapped, Teo took off like a rocket, completely selling out for an inside run. His suspicions were true, as an inside run to Taylor was dialed up. Teo knifed between the center and guard, going low, wrapping up Taylor's legs just as contained linebacker Prince Shembo and defensive tackle Capron Lewis Moore wrapped Taylor up top, bringing him quickly to the ground. A one-yard gain. Second and goal from the three-yard line. Teo scans the Stanford offense pensively. Seeing that the Cardinal was coming out virtually in the same offensive formation, he begins barking directives up and down the defensive front, 
grabbing Lewis Moore by the shoulder pad to just very slightly realign him. Stanford coach David Shaw dialed up another inside run with Taylor. But, unlike the previous play, Taylor found some daylight, slogging forward three yards before finally being dragged to the ground by Lewis Moore and the late Kona Schwenke. It was very close. Several Cardinal players raised their arms, thinking a touchdown was scored, but there was no signal from the referees. Third and goal from inside the one-yard line. I repeat, third and goal from inside the one-yard line. This time, there would be no fancy formations or punches pulled. The Cardinal took the field in a goal-line formation, aspiring to batter the Irish front and tie the game. Now Teo stood a couple paces off the line of scrimmage. No surprise, another inside handoff to Taylor. With the interior defensive tackles going low to create a pile around the A and B gaps, Teo pushed stunting Lewis Nix III out of the way, leaping over his teammates to meet and stymie Taylor over a sea of bodies at the line of scrimmage for a no game. And I have watched this play over and over again, and it still looks like a scene out of a movie. The immovable object versus the unstoppable force. Now, whatever one Teo was, he won. Fourth and goal, again from inside the one-yard line. The Cardinal roll up to the line of scrimmage, again in goal line formation. Now, there were some suspicions that perhaps the Cardinal be running a play-action pass of some kind, uh, something to keep the Irish defense off guard after three straight inside runs with Stefan Taylor. But instead, it was yet for the fourth consecutive play, another inside handoff to Stefan Taylor. Cornerback Bennett Jackson screamed off the edge of the defensive right to get a hand on the powerful Taylor behind the line of scrimmage. But Taylor kept churning forward, but a pile of bodies formed right around the goal line. While Taylor was being brought to the ground by a host of Irish defenders, his legs kept churning and he reached out and broke the plane with the ball. However, the referees deemed that he was down and that the Notre Dame fighting Irish defense had stopped him for the fourth consecutive play. And pandemonium swept over the stadium. The Irish defense hugged and, and embraced and celebrated and cheered. The student section was going wild, but the referees wanted to take a second look. An official review was conducted, but they could not find any irrefutable evidence that Taylor had indeed broken the plane before his forward progress had stopped. The game was over, and this one belonged to the Irish 20-13 to after what can only be described as one of the gutsiest defensive sequences in recent Irish history. Now, as most of us are keenly aware, the Irish would run the table, winning their next seven contests and making a run at a national championship that January, before ultimately falling to the Crimson Tide of the University of Alabama. Manti Teo, for his efforts, would finish second that year in the Heisman voting behind Johnny Manziel of Texas A&M. Though I haven't taken the time to kind of construct a, a pantheon of the top games or at least the top thrilling games to watch uh, in the last you know five to ten years, you know even of the Brian Kelly era, this one has 
and probably always will stick out to me because as I mentioned before that you know somewhat dramatic recount of the game this is this was the contest that at least for that 2012 season really showed folks you know across college football and across you know the country that Notre Dame was for real and they would they would go on and prove that game after game after game now I know there's a lot said about their worthiness to face Alabama that year but I'm of the mind always that you can only defeat the opponents that you have in front of you, and that's what Notre Dame did all the way through the regular season. And I do just really think about, when I think about the last, as I mentioned again, sorry, before the uh, the recount of the game, the last 10 years of Irish football, I mean, this I feel like was the game that signaled kind of the beginning of the modern era of Notre Dame football. I think everybody was happy that the Charlie Weiss era was over and Brian Kelly was trying to get his sea legs under him. So this is, you know, game five, six, game six of his third season. And this is, I think, what really, like I said, ushered in that modern era. So anyways, I, I really hope you enjoyed that synopsis of the game. Uh, and it was, it was a lot of fun to go back and watch. I watched pretty much the entire game, and of course I watched the fourth quarter in overtime several times just because th there were so many moments and so many plays that were so pivotal in that game that if I covered all of them, it, the, uh, the podcast would probably last an hour or two, uh, which is not my intention. But if you have an opportunity, the one play that I, I didn't really get to allude to very much was uh, there was a Tommy Reese pass uh, in overtime that he floated to Theo Riddick, and it seemed like it it lingered in the air for 15 seconds, and it was the completion that ultimately set up the touchdown pass to T.J. Jones. But as he's right about as he's about to get hit, Reese just kind of lofts one up to uh, Theo Riddick running out of the backfield on something of a wheel route, I believe, and and Riddick somehow comes down with the catch. It was just extraordinary, and that kind of set up the scoring play. But, uh, but I really do hope you enjoyed that. So the next bit of programming is going to be five Irish players that you need to keep an eye on in 2019. I th and there's many, many more than five. And you'll pick up a bit of a trend that these five are replacing stalwart, longtime starters. You know, on I have two offense, two defense, and one special teamer. So uh, again, the theme, I guess, with these five is that they will be replacing that they will be more than likely replacing Saturday mainstays for the Irish football team. All right, so let's just launch right into it here. So number five, this kind of, as I mentioned, there is a special teamer on the list, and number five is punter, freshman Jay Bramblett. He was the number five nationally ranked punter in the class of 2019, and he committed to Notre Dame back in the May of back in May, pardon me, of 2018, and he is now slated as the number one punter on the depth chart with. Well, with big shoes to fill, as everyone's favorite mulleted strongman Tyler Newsom is now at the San Diego Chargers. But the Tuscaloosa product should have some job security, as if you look up and down the roster, he is the only punter on scholarship. So hopefully the Irish offense puts him in a position where he doesn't have to punt a whole lot. But, of course, that's always the hope, regardless of how good your punter is. But I guess the, the moral of that is, is that the program can be a little bit more patient you know, with the youngster. Number five is freshman punter Jay Bramblett. All right, number four, we flip over to the offensive side of the ball, and that's going to be tight end Cole Komet. 
I don't know why this is, but Komet feels like he's been with the program for a really long time, but he still has two years of eligibility left, and he is a junior. But last year, he had 15 catches for 162 yards uh, in 11 games that he appeared in, including a catch for 11 yards in the Cotton Bowl. But Notre Dame long considered tight end U. That reputation's bit, been a bit dampered here in recent years. We'll kind of see how Alizé Mack kind of transitions to the NFL. But he was the third-ranked tight end uh, in his recruiting class, and he signed with the Irish. And so I really expect a big breakout year from him. Uh, I think he's going to give Ian Book another seasoned weapon to throw to. And in a year where you're, you know, you're losing Miles Boykin and Mack, you know, I don't think having a, uh, you know, having a, a shortage of options for Ian Book will be a bad thing. So I really think that this is Komet's big year. Uh, he, he, like I said, he was kind of tight end two for the last last year and he saw a little bit of action his first year but he is about six foot five about 255 pounds so he does present a big target who can kind of run fairly well up the seams and also you know over the middle uh, it's kind of a dump off route for uh for ian book but what i do like about Komet is he, he is pretty nimble for his size and does create kind of those natural mismatches as he does possess nfl tight end kind of that prototypical size all right, and for number three, we're actually going to bounce over to the defensive side of the ball and take a quick peek here at sophomore defensive back Houston Griffith. Now, Houston Griffith was a four-star recruit uh, coming out of high school. And in fact, according to 24-7 Sports, he was the 11th ranked tight end in the entire country. So he did appear in some... Uh, he did get some action, I should say, last year. He played in 11 games and actually started against Wake Forest. Actually, coincidentally, that was Ian Book's first start as well. But he made 14 total tackles with two pass, break, pass breakups and a QB hurry. So he is, uh, as it stands now, uh, someone who has kind of bounced between safety and corner. And he played a little bit of nickel and dime last year. Uh, he saw quite a bit of action. But uh, Notre Dame, kind of like other positions, including like offensive line, tight end, they've really churned out some really talented uh, members of the defensive backfield. They had a couple years there where the defensive backfield was like really young back when Julian Love was uh, was a youngster and you know the guys are really kind of growing into their roles. So I look for Houston Griffith to make a, a big leap in his second year and kind of join a talented Notre Dame defensive backfield already that's that features talents such as, you know, Alohi Gilman, Jalen Elliott, Sean Crawford, Troy Pride Jr. So I guess when you have a lot of experience surrounding you, you know, Houston Griffith is probably going to be that cornerback that gets picked on, um, especially early in the season. But uh, that, I guess, means for him, that is an opportunity for him to kind of showcase some playmaking ability, maybe some ball hawk skills. He does possess really good size for a corner. So uh, he is, let's, uh, I was going to say, he's about six foot. He's a little over 200 pounds. So, you know, he's not a slight cornerback by any means. He's going to be someone who is really physical at the line, uh, can hopefully knock some receivers off their routes. And as I mentioned, when I look up and down this defense, there's a lot that we're missing from this last season, but there were some, I think, uh, you know, capable, capable youngsters kind of coming up the ranks. And as a sophomore, Houston Griffith would certainly be one of those. And I do believe, as I mentioned, he will have opportunities to showcase his playmaking ability. So number three is Houston Griffith. All right. And for number two, we're going to jump back over to the offensive side of the ball. And we're going to look at here briefly, uh, wideout Michael Young. And this is a guy that I am like super high on. Uh, he was a three-star guy coming out of high school. 
And uh, kind of according to who you looked at, if you look at 24-7 sports, he was the 69th ranked wideout in the country. Now a junior, Young has actually appeared in every game for the last two years, uh, mostly as a special teamer, but last year he did have uh, seven catches for 138 yards and one touchdown. And if you remember uh, the Wake Forest game, he caught a screen pass and really turned the Jets on, went completely across the field, uh, eventually was caught by a really good angle by the Wake Forest defender, but he did take the ball 66 yards and uh, set up a score. But he, to me, possesses... A lot of that speed that you'd like to see, uh, particularly out of a guy who's maybe a little bit smaller. He's only about 5'10", but he can kind of blow the top off a of defense. But uh, as, as you saw, like, as I mentioned during the Wake Forest game, he can catch the screen passes. And if he's given a little bit of space, he's able to find seams really well and, and work his way up and across the field, however, to, to gain yards. So, And, you know, there is a fair amount of... There is a fair amount of experience coming back in the wide receiver ranks. You know, Chase Claypool's back. Miles Boykin's gone, of course, but Chase Claypool's back. Uh, Chris Fink is back. So I think those two will demand a lot of of attention from defenses. And, of course, Jafar Armstrong, who can forget him? I mean, he's kind of our multi-purpose guy uh, lining up at wide out, but also in the backfield. He's just kind of an offensive weapon. So, you know, with the return of Claypool, Jafar Armstrong, uh, as well as Chris Fink, as I mentioned earlier with Cole Kmet, this is going to allow guys like like Michael and Cole to to get looks and maybe even some unabated looks, uh, given the uh, the the attention that defenses are going to have to pay to the other to the other skill guys. So uh, number two is junior wide receiver Michael Young, and finally number one is linebacker Jack Lamb. Now, Lamb is a sophomore, and he was uh, coming out of high school ranked as the fourth best middle linebacker in the entire country, according to 24-7 Sports, and he has yet to see any significant amount of, of play time. Uh, he didn't last year, I should say, but he's a name that a lot of people are talking about as possible excuse me, as possible, you know, heir apparent to guys like uh, Drew Tranquil or Niles Morgan, um, you know, Tavon Coney is gone. So there will be plenty of spots to fill, you know, whether it be weak side linebacker, middle linebacker, or kind of that rover position. But as I mentioned, you know, with those losses that uh, the Irish have suffered, you know, due to graduation or the draft, whatever have you, the linebacker position are, is that that I'm kind of most nervous about coming into the season as far as not a lot of these guys have accomplished or had the opportunity to accomplish a lot on Saturday. So Asmar Bilal is is a senior, and I think I believe he's the lone senior, but he's slated to kind of hold it down at middle linebacker. But a guy like Jack Lamb or Jordan Gedmark Heath or JGH, as he's otherwise known as, um, but Jack Lamb at 6'4", 227, I mean, he has the size and the ranginess to go sideline to sideline and kind of provide that traditional run-stuffing lineback linebacker that uh, you'd expect. But, you know, I think he's also ranging up and rewatching the spring game. He did fairly well for himself in passing situations as well. So I think he's a good athlete, and I think uh, when it comes to the defense, particularly, you know, in today's college game, which spread out the defense is so thin and, and try to find those small seams, those small openings, having a guy who can kind of move and be versatile like Jack Lamb uh, would, would serve the defense well. And so I'm, I'm not sure. I haven't even checked the depth chart, but he's probably, he may not even be slated to be number one, but I do feel like after, um, you know, summer camp and uh, all the preseason stuff that... Uh, he's someone, like I said, that I'm I'm super high on, and I think will uh, will come through and, and really break out this year. So, 
So, well, there you have it. Those are the five names that I won't go as far as to say expect a breakout season for, but as preseason starts and particularly the early goings of the season, keep your, keep your eye on these five. Uh, and I think that you could see some really good, exciting things come out of them. So, again, number five, freshman punter Jay Bramblett. Number four, junior tight end Cole Komet. Number three, sophomore defensive back Houston Griffith. Number two, junior wide receiver Michael Young. And number one, sophomore linebacker Jack Lamb. We'll be right back with some end-of-the-show announcements and a quick wrap-up. And stay with us. And all right, as I mentioned earlier, that will about wrap us up. Episode 3 is coming to a close, but for a quick recap, we uh, didn't necessarily do a blow-by-blow account, but a fairly comprehensive retelling of the Instant Classic 2012 Notre Dame-Stanford game, which uh, ended with that goal line stand, which was just phenomenal. So we went fairly in-depth in that, I suppose, but we also talked about five names you need to know heading into the 2019 season. Uh, and had a good bit of fun with that as well, I hope. So uh, that's kind of a bit of a recap. Now, as far as shows for the future, uh, there will be a big preview, season preview episode coming as the season gets a little closer, and I'm working on an episode currently that I'm really, really excited about. It's about George Gipp and uh, just the stunning, fascinating things that he was able to accomplish while he was at Notre Dame, but also some of those things that I, I read a book about him recently, and we'll kind of dive into that, but some of it literally read like it was fiction, and but it, it wasn't. That's just how astoundingly athletic and, I mean, frankly, astoundingly cool George Gipp was, and of course, he is absolutely in the pantheon of Notre Dame football heroes. So I want to talk a little bit briefly about ways to help the show. So I mentioned the magnet and the postcard earlier, and I'll make sure I share images of those on Facebook. So if you share this episode, I will call uh, out a couple names, maybe one or two names next episode, uh, depending on how many people we get to share it. Um, and you know, you'll be, uh, as I mentioned, if you share it, you'll automatically be in the drawing to to win uh, a magnet, one of the new magnets and the postcards. I'm really excited about them. They're really small, but again, very excited about them. So. Feel free to share, like, comment, anything, uh, the show. It's so greatly appreciated. Now, if you don't want to play the lottery, so to speak, and you just want a magnet and you want a postcard. Now, I don't like to ask for money, but putting on a podcast does cost uh, money, believe it or not. And so I spent a lot of time on this, whether it be with research, you know, subscriptions, whatever have you. And if if you feel so compelled, you can donate monetarily to the show. So if you're to donate five dollars to the show, uh, we are on PayPal at onward to victory pay. Excuse me, onward to victory podcast at gmail.com. That is our PayPal account. If you're to donate five dollars to the to the show for the for the greater good here, I will just send you a magnet. I will send you a postcard. Uh, free shipping, of course, but know that your donation will go directly to the show, whether it be for a more robust. Uh, subscription to our uh, to our host site of Podbean or to maybe other sites to hopefully expand the audience, but also to perhaps better audio equipment, whatever have you. Um, but I 
promise you, I give you my word that 100% of it will go directly back into the show, hopefully directly back into improving, as I mentioned, the quality of the show, and uh, hopefully that is something that will be felt by everybody. So if you feel so compelled, we are on PayPal. Again, it's onward to victory podcast at gmail.com. If you donate five bucks, send me your home address and I'll get you something in the mail just as soon as possible. So again, if you were to donate to the show, it'd be greatly appreciated. And I'll be sure to announce your name uh, during an episode as an honorary producer. But as I mentioned, most of the ways you can help the show actually involve zero money. So just feel free to like and comment and share and correspond. Uh, I love talking about Notre Dame football, and I would love talking about Notre Dame football with any one of you, uh, particularly if you're taking the time to listen uh, to the podcast. So that, I believe, will about wrap us up. So let's see. Recap, ways to help the show, and kind of a future episode plan. Okay, yep, that'll do it. So I hope you enjoyed this. My name is Alex Painter, and this was Onward to Victory, a Notre Dame football podcast. And as always, go Irish.